Welcome to episode 24 of Getting Real About. In today's episode, Shauna and Leah talk about cultivating empathy in all sorts of different spheres of life. They cover the differences between sympathy and empathy, talk about how empathy has factored into their parenting for kids of all ages, and share how empathy has been a catalyst for spiritual growth for them, where God has highlighted blind spots and challenged their thinking. You'll learn how to follow Jesus in his example of empathy, inclusion, and allyship, and be invited to listen to where God is calling you to cultivate empathy in your current season. All right, ladies, it's time to get real. Welcome to another episode of Getting Real About. We are getting real about empathy today, and I am so excited to be in this discussion. I'm Shauna. If you haven't met me, I'm the leadership development pastor at Gold Creek, and I've been on staff now for approaching my 10-year anniversary of work here, and I wear a lot of hats, but I started in the worship department, and now I help out our new families, and I work on a lot of projects that involve leadership in the church, including our college-age interns, which is one of my fun things that I get to be involved with. But I have been at Gold Creek for 11 years. I met my husband here. We now have two kids. So that's all kind of like full circle being around Gold Creek and just having everything here become family. So that's been pretty cool. And I am here today with Leah. So Leah, tell me a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Shauna. I'm Leah Bender, and I serve here at the Mill Creek campus. My family's been attending church here at Gold Creek for about four, five years, actually. And um, both my husband and I, you'll see us greeting every Sunday. I'm usually at the front door. He's at the back door. And uh, we're both born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. We've been married for 20 years. We've got three kids all in college. One's a senior at the University of Washington and the other two are twins and they're freshmen at Central Washington University. And, um, you know, I've been a mom for a long time and was a young mom. And throughout that time, I've always had a full-time career. And I recently joined the transformation office at a local, um, locally based financial advisory firm. And I do change management there, which is change management. It's an approach to shift and transition organizations, individuals, and teams from a current state to a future state. So in the context of business, that's usually new technology. It might be an organizational change mm-hmm. or like new processes. So I get to help lead kind of the human side of those types of projects. Wow. That's pretty cool to hear about a little bit of what you do. And yeah, you've been around Gold Creek. It's been fun to see your family getting involved here and just, we've had a lot of good conversations. So I'm really excited to be recording this today with you because I feel like you and I have gone back and forth a lot on different topics and just kind of things resonating in our lives in different times. And, um, you know, I'm coming out of my young adulthood and now I'm like supposed to be a real adult, I guess, and no longer (laughs) young, especially when I get with my interns and I realize I'm like almost twice their age now. Um, So it's been fun to just meet with people who are a little bit further down the road of some of the things you're going through and just bounce ideas back and forth. And so today we're talking about the concept of cultivating empathy. And how do you define empathy? Yeah, it's really interesting to think about empathy and sympathy because they're similar concepts. And um, I think it's really easy to interchange them and 
They're different, though. They mean something different from one another. Sympathy is about acknowledging the struggle that someone is going through and offering them comfort um, and maybe some support. But empathy really goes a level deeper than that. That is trying to sit in their perspective, right? Putting yourself in their shoes or understanding what they're experiencing because you've been there. You've been through something similar, um, or maybe you're going through it right now, and, and it's really something that you have a lens into. And I'll also add on to that. There's this idea of compassion, too, that we hear a lot in Scripture. We talk about being compassionate people. That's, I think, a, a core characteristic that as Christians we want to try to embody. Um, but I don't know that we really stop and think about what does compassion actually mean. And I like to think of it as compassion is empathy on the next level, right? It's sitting in someone else's perspective with the desire to actually help them through that situation. And um, well, I think we can dive in a little bit into what what is productive help too, because yeah. sometimes that's not wanted, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about the difference between empathy and sympathy because it definitely does, they sound really similar, obviously. So we're trying to think what are the different characteristics? And there's this video by Brene Brown. I saw it years and years ago. And it's super short, but it really gets to the point really quickly of what is that difference. And just like you said, like there's, you can feel for someone and feel bad that they're going through something in their life and that's sympathy, but the empathy includes that feeling what they're feeling and putting, trying to put yourself in a position where you're remembering that type of feeling from something else you've gone through to really identify with them. And she says that empathy fuels connection Whereas sympathy drives disconnection because sympathy can just be very surface level. It can be very like, I'm looking down on you in the hole. This is what she kind of illustrates in that video. And um, yeah, it looks pretty bad down there. Sorry. like, <laughs> And that doesn't help someone feel connected to you. It doesn't help them know that you're um, rooting for them, that you're on their side, that you really appreciate them and what they bring to the table. You know, it doesn't really help your relationship at all. And she talked about how empathy being feeling with people, really there's four steps. And the first one's perspective taking or putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And secondly, staying out of judgment and listening. Thirdly, to recognize the emotion in another person that you maybe felt before. So that's like I mentioned, like try to remember back to when you felt something similar. And then fourth is communicating that you can recognize the emotion that that person is going through. So I found that really helpful for kind of framing, okay, this is what empathy can look like practically. But then I've been thinking a lot about Jesus and I feel like I've been on this journey of learning more about myself lately and things that I've been struggling with or wanting to grow in. And Jesus is always right there showing me the way. And it's cool to look back at scripture and realize, wow, I've never noticed Jesus and empathy before, or, you know, these different characteristics of Jesus. It's always been there, but now that God's working on that in my heart, um, it's really being highlighted. So I was looking through scripture for um, examples of when Jesus was empathetic. And in John, it says that uh, this is when Lazarus had died. And he says that when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Lazarus's sister, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And I feel like we always hear the verse, Jesus wept. 
And I always thought, well, of course, he's sad. His friend died. Like, so he's crying, even though he can bring him back from the dead. He's human. So he feels that emotion of sadness that his friend is gone. But this scripture really highlights. No, it's actually him seeing the impact of that death on Lazarus's family and the other Jews that were there, which were probably Lazarus's friends. It's seeing the pain in them could have been what made Jesus weep in that moment, which I just thought was really interesting. And there's also a few instances of healing in which um, the phrase is used, moved with compassion. So in Mark 1, Jesus is moved with compassion and he reaches out and touches a man with leprosy and heals him, which, you know, a leper was an unclean person. They weren't someone that was supposed to be touched. So not only did Jesus like get on his level, but he gave him back his humanity of like, I will still touch you and I healed you. But that moved with compassion, I feel like, again, it goes back to that empathy uh, conversation we were having where compassion's that next level, right? And Jesus is doing that. And there's other instances of that with more um, instances of healing and other times where it says Jesus is moved with compassion it has to do with crowds. So there's this whole group of people and Jesus is feeling everything they're feeling and he does something about it. So he performs miracles. He performs healing. He brings about food to care for the physical needs of people. And all of that really starts with his compassion and empathy. And the one that really got me, I was reading this article and it was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and something I'd never put together was he looks at John and he looks at his mother and says, you know, woman, this is your son. This is your mother, you know, and he's kind of like connecting John and his mom together. And this article I read pointed out that he was feeling empathy for his mother's emotional pain watching her son die. And that's why he ensured she would be cared for. Like he cares enough about his mother when he's actually the one there dying. And, you know, if you look into what the actual process of crucifixion was, he probably had nails in his wrists that were pulling through to his hands that he had to push up against in order to take a breath in order to say what he said to his mother. And all of that came from watching the pain his mother was going through, which I just thought was really crazy. But all of those instances in which we can see Jesus showing us the way to be empathetic in so many areas. And I've just been thinking about, and Leah, we've been talking about what are all of the different areas in our life in which we can see cultivating empathy being a benefit to us. So one of the first things we're going to talk about is empathy in the workplace. And I know you've experienced this um, a lot of there's so many benefits to going through an empathetic training or just learning to grow in this area and how it influences the way we are as Christians at work. And um, one of the things I'm working on right now is learning about design thinking, which gets you in the mindset of the customer or the audience, the person you're trying to reach. And it's, it's just a tool. It's a brainstorming process. But I think in any organization, the higher you go or the longer you've been in that organization, the more removed you are from the needs of the people you're actually reaching. So any exercise you can do to bring yourself back to the immediate needs of those people is super helpful. So I've been kind of going through that right now, but uh, you've gone through a lot of working in diverse environments. So talk a little bit about how that has helped you learn to cultivate empathy. Yeah, that's 
This is such an interesting topic to me. And I love design thinking also. I love that the literally the first step in design thinking is, is empathy. empathy. Yeah, it's right? a five-step process and the first step is empathy. Exactly. Yeah. It's, re- it's pretty cool. Um, you know, in the work that I do currently as, as a change management practitioner, well, maybe I should share about what change management is in a little bit more detail. So it's really a methodology uh, that is both an art and a science. And, and I mentioned before, it's to help people go from what the current state is today to what the future state is going to be. And that can be, again, an organizational change, a system change, or a process change. Um, so it's the structured methodology. And one of the concepts in it is the change curve. And in the change curve, um, it's where people are going through a whole process. And you might think of this as like, Maybe a real life example for folks that they can relate to is like the stages of grief, where you are aware of it, you um, become, you have a you know a desire to go through what change is happening or denial, knowledge, ability, and then finally you get to a place where you can kind of reinforce this new way of this future way of being, and each step in that can really uh, create some. I don't know. I, I get like negative sentiments, like skepticism mm-hmm. and anger and frustration. And so when you really think about this idea of change, it's important to consider uh, empathy in that because every single person is experiencing some kind of change at any point in time. And they're somewhere on this change curve. And that can be changes that are happening in the world. It can be changes that are happening in our family, work changes. It, it just think right now, try to think of an example of like all the things that are happening in your life and how are you feeling about each of those things? Mm -hmm. That is the change curve in practice. So that's really something that I find is helpful, um, is a helpful way to approach work and, and to approach how you interact with folks. And especially in the world where, um, you know, change is happening at a really fast pace and, we just, in the past two years is a really great example. Like how many times have we pivoted from one thing to another, right? And people just are trying to keep their th- their lives together. <laughs> um, it, so like having empathy is a really important thing in the workplace because we're all just managing so much. And then in addition to that, there's this concept in social psychology called, this is, sorry, I'm going to go academic here. I but, like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's called fundamental attribution error. And what that is, is the tendency for people to um, over explain other people's behavior as an inherent flaw in that person. So Sean, if you cut me off in the parking lot on Sunday, I might think, oh my gosh, she's such a jerk. She's so inconsiderate. What a bad person. Hmm. That's me over indexing on like the person who you are. It's a lot of conclusions. It's a lot of conclusions. Right. Um, and, and at the same time, I'm discounting the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't see me. Maybe there was a kid you were trying to avoid hitting in the parking lot. Right. So, uh, fundamental attribution error is one of those things that if you're aware of it, you can kind of slow down on drawing those very fast conclusions about the person mm-hmm. that they are and think a little bit more about the whole situation. And I've found that that has been really helpful in discussing things like inclusion and diversity topics yeah. at work. You know, everybody has a lived experience that is their own, that is valid and is influenced by their circumstances, their environment, 
their upbringing, their belief system. It's, it's everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think in a culture where we tend to vilify the unfamiliar and, um, you know, kind of forget to default to like remembering that we're all humans under the sun. We're all, you know, we're all here on the same planet together. Um, it can be, it can be hard if you don't pause and really stop and think about like, why am I, why am I drawing those conclusions? Right. Why am I jumping to a value judgment about that person versus trying to understand the situation? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I feel like one of the things or one of the ways this kind of comes to life is, or actually I'll rephrase that. I think sometimes for me, it's been helpful to think through the lens of, um, how I show up as Christian in the workplace is I want to be grace filled. And when things around me are uncomfortable, when my company is having us attend these courageous conversations or these things that really challenge my thinking, what, how can I, how can I process through that and be a little bit more like Jesus? And so I like to encourage folks to think, you know, about change, not being inherently good or bad. It just, it just is yeah, right. And it's how we react to it that we, uh, need to think through, um, things are, especially change can be emotional. It's inherently nonlinear. It's normal to think, you know, if I'm being exposed to this new thing or things are shifting around me in my world, um, how does that impact me? That's a very natural instinct to mm -hmm. think like, what does that mean? That's, that's human nature. And then I think it's fair and it's right to mourn what was once what, what things were before while also recognizing that going forward into a new future isn't necessarily just a net loss, but there's usually actually a lot of gain from that. There's either growth or there's, you know, that can be personal growth. There's maybe in the context of, um, you know, a business, there's opportunity for the business to grow in your career for professional opportunities. You know, there might be a reorg that happens and people are put in new positions and that might mean a new challenge for you too. So really thinking about how it's okay to mourn the way things were and what, yeah. what your, um, like frame of reference was, and then establish some new ways of thinking about things. Yeah. And you touched on, um, uh, one thing I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit and like talking about inclusion and diversity in the workplace. And, um, I have been really thinking about the concept of Jesus as the includer, because sometimes as Christians, we can get a little bit of that visceral reaction to some words that seem very, um, they're buzzwords in our culture and we're trying to rectify, do they, do they match with my worldview of what God's calling me to, or is this something too secular? So I shouldn't jump on board or, you know, like there can be definitely tensions there. And so sometimes we just need to reclaim words for the kingdom that um, people are scared of because they think it's outside of what God is doing. And inclusion, I think might be one of those words for some people where it seems like, well, maybe I don't need to take these additional steps because that just seems like something that's getting um, pushed down my throat from whatever agenda that's, you know, outside of the church that's operating in my life. And really, Jesus was a huge example of inclusion. And we'll talk more about what that means, about how that differs from just uh, saying everything you're doing in your life is perfect and right. But Jesus included people in a way that was like, 
mind shattering in his day. First of all, he included um, women and that would include like Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, who is a woman with a questionable history. Uh, the Samaritan woman who, again, was like culturally outside of the people he should have been talking to. And all of these women he gave good standing to, he gave relationship to, he invested in in a way that was very countercultural, being a single young male. Um, and then he also included all races. So again, going back to Samaritan, good Samaritan, he's sitting down at the well with her and all the disciples are like, why did we not just walk around Samaria? We don't go through here. Like these are the bad people, whatever. And I think that's why he also made the good person in the story, the good Samaritan, because it just confused everyone. They're like, why am I supposed to think highly about this person that I actually would think down upon. And he was really flipping the script on that and making people break their presuppositions about people because he made the priest the bad guy, right? Like he made all the things that you think are going to be the good person. They didn't do the right thing. And then the good Samaritan did the right thing. The Samaritan, this um, person of a race that was seen as lesser. And then after his death, you see the gospel traveling into so many different people groups. And he really, he gives us the call. We're supposed to reach all nations, all peoples, tribes, and languages and include them in his kingdom. And that's our call moving forward. If we want to see what it's going to look like in heaven, it's going to be very diverse. It's going to be very different than the circle I'm in right now. Um, it's going to be way bigger than what I can imagine. Uh, and the typical, like statistically, Right now in this stage of life, I think the typical Christian is actually like African. Um, Christianity is exploding in Africa more than it is in Western nations. And so we can tend to put ourselves in a box of thinking this is what Christianity looks like. It's anything I grew up experiencing. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, additionally, Jesus includes all socioeconomic levels. That was crazy. In no other sphere of the world at this time, would a slave be coexisting in conversation with um, a rich person who was not their slave owner, you know? Mm -hmm. And he had fishermen in the fold with him, which they were the poor of the poor, they were the working class. And then he also had tax collectors as his disciples and not just Judas who betrayed him, but I, you know, there were more disciples that were from all of these different areas that were, he was including them in his kingdom and in his movement moving forward, regardless of where they were economically and including women of means, which again would have been very countercultural to be interacting with these women. And Jesus included those with differing abilities. And he uh, said about one man when he's being questioned, they're trying to, Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in a hole and make him say the wrong thing. And they ask him, well, why was this man, you know, born blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus totally changes the script. He said, this is so the works of God may be displayed in his life. And when have I had that mindset when I look at someone with differing abilities? So I just feel like Jesus is again, such a great example of including so many people in the work that he's doing in a way that really broke down walls that we could take example from. And a lot of times the, the business world tends to be ahead of the church in the realms of diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. And uh, I was watching this video from Lori Adams Brown, and she was talking about this whole concept of Jesus being the includer and pointing these things out. And 
really, we don't want to get left behind in this. We should be leading in the areas of inclusion as Christians. We should be showing people how to do it. So um, take the example of Jesus and move towards how can I include more people in what I'm doing and what the church is doing in what uh, I'm going through in the workplace? How can I make sure people feel valued? Because that's what Jesus would do. And how can we feel with those people who are different from us. So that's where that empathy comes in. It's like, I really can't include people if I'm not even noticing that they're there, if I'm not noticing their differences, their frustrations, the things that they're going through. And I also went through a LinkedIn learning course on allyship. And I thought this was so interesting. I know you and I were talking about how some people maybe haven't even heard the word allyship and being an ally and what does that mean? And it comes down to asking questions. When you see those inequities arise, when you see maybe inclusion not happening, you're stepping into the gap and advocating for others who don't have a voice in that moment, being a part of hearing different perspectives and making your work environment a safe place for feedback from all types of people because all of our work is better when we include the voices of all people and making sure that, you know, what God's doing in us is evident to those around us. So I thought it was super interesting. I'd never heard the phrase man interrupting. That was a new one for me. I liked that one. <laughs> and so just that was one idea in the allyship talk was like when you notice mansplaining or man interrupting. So you're in a meeting and the only people being interrupted are women calling out that behavior. Maybe not in the moment, but you pull someone aside and say, hey, I'm noticing something or have you noticed? when you notice racism or microaggressions or other things that don't include everyone in the people group you're trying to reach, it's that idea that you're going to start asking the questions to try to see if you can make a change um, through maybe if I have the ability to be at the table with some voices that um, maybe others don't have the ability to speak to, that maybe I can bring them along with me by bringing their concerns and raising the concerns and the questions to the people that matter, that make decisions and make sure that we're being better includers, just like Jesus would call us to. So um, one of the most compelling things about the church should be how we love one another mm -hmm. and include one another. And I know that sometimes we do that well, other times we don't. And this is an area in which we can show that to the world. We can grow in our empathy, in our allyship and in our inclusion that we start being intentional about that and people will see this visible, obvious ramification of Christ working in us. Yeah, that's so good. And yeah, I, it's, you know, Jesus really, he left a model for us to follow is yeah. what it boils down to. And when we think about, um, you know, as I, sh when I try to show up as a good ally, as a Christian, um, it's, it's really about defaulting to love and understanding and recognizing that even though um, I grew up in an environment where not very many people looked like me, uh, my heritage is Filipino-American, and I grew up in Shoreline, which was a predominantly Caucasian community at the time, um, I that, that was reality. People were confused mm -hmm. about, like, who are you? You're very foreign. Like, what's going on? Do you speak English? I, right. And, um, and I also recognize that even though I was part of a marginalized group in my upbringing, I also have a level of privilege myself now mm -hmm. 
based on my socioeconomic standing, my full-time employment, the fact that I'm a believer in um, Christ and here in in North America, like these are mm-hmm. all things that actually constitute privilege. And I think that that's a concept also that people don't fully know how to grasp. Yeah. And I think it's really worthwhile to examine, um, you know, how, how did Jesus, when he was walking the earth, use his position, use his knowledge of the way the world is, was, and will always be to really show and help us understand how to seek understanding towards others. And um, I, I really go back to defaulting to love and understanding in, in these conversations and going, how can I introduce the concept of Christ's love through mm-hmm. these discussions or through learning about um, a, the way that I can show up better for people who might otherwise be marginalized. And, you know, in the workplace, you can't, unless you work here, <laughs> you don't usually have the opportunity to name Jesus mm-hmm. um, in a conversation, but you can definitely model what he did. And yeah. you can, um, and you can cite those examples without, without citing those examples specifically. Mm-hmm. And you're just, and you're living through the Holy spirit in those moments. And, um, I try to do that as much as possible whenever, whenever I can. Yeah. And I definitely think it comes back to that. Um, the empathy, just like you were talking about the defaulting to love and, uh, not jumping to judgment because I mean, historically as Christians, we can be seen as very judgmental mm-hmm. and who doesn't love to judge on the side sometimes, right? Like we, we watch things on TV because we want to get into the nitty gritties and just be like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? Right? Like the judgmental mindset is so prevalent in our society. It's not even seen as something bad. It's just what we all do. So breaking out of that is so hard, but I feel like for me, the personal work that I've been doing on kind of dismantling racism in myself and realizing Um, yeah, the privilege that I have as a white person growing up here. So of course, like I experienced some level of marginalization because I'm a woman. There's things that I go through that are different than a man. And so I have that, but maybe that has made me in the past feel like, oh, I don't have white privilege or I don't have, um, maybe this racial thing isn't as real as some people say it is. And I've not always dove into learning. And I think that recently in the past couple years, God's just really been working in my life in that area and putting people in the right place at the right time to challenge me. And just like you said, press in when you feel uncomfortable. So if you hear the word privilege and it makes you want to turn off this podcast, maybe sit with the uncomfortability and think, why does that make me feel like that? Um, What is it about that word that grinds my gears the wrong way? Or do I fully understand what people mean by that when they say white privilege? Or am I assuming based on my life experience that it's not true because I'm taking my meaning and putting it on this phrase, right? And I feel like for me in the past few years, I've just been so challenged to grow in my empathy towards others that don't look like me, Mm -hmm. but also to bring other people along with me in this growth. Because um, as a white person, I can turn off the conversation about race. Mm -hmm. It, 
I, that is what the privilege is. The white privilege is the fact that I don't have to sit here and think about it and talk about it if I don't want to. I can turn it off and not have the conversation. Um, but I do have a little bit of a unique situation in, in that I'm raising two brown children. My husband is black and um, there's times where I look at this world and I don't want my brown kids growing up in a world that is going to treat them so differently. And if I completely ignore the conversation about race, I'm doing a disservice to them. So if God's calling me to grow in it because I'm parenting these two wonderful beings, um, how can I partner with other parents who maybe aren't going through that, don't have the same pressure on them to change the world for their children, but bring them alongside in my journey to become an ally with me and grow because it's something that God's doing and he's moving through. And for me, I'm learning how much growth in my acknowledgement of racial inequality is actually inextricably linked to my spiritual formation, mm -hmm. that I am growing in my Christ likeness by understanding the people around me and um, inviting God into that conversation. And so I've done, you know, multiple small groups with people where I'm studying different books. And uh, that's just literally the most surface level thing that I could do in this moment as a mom of young kids. There's so much more, you know, activism I could press into, but at least starting there with let's learn what does this phrase mean or what does this concept mean has actually been so fueling to my spiritual life because Jesus is really teaching me things about myself, about my presuppositions. It's a self-reflection work. Like I am not going to sit around and necessarily teach people about racism. It's more of like, let me learn about my actual racist self, that there are things that I'm doing or thinking or believing that I didn't realize were racist. And so how can I change that? How can I change my presuppositions and grow? And that's just been huge for me. I feel like it's been this mind opening journey of the past few years of God really using the things going on in our world to shape me specifically and hopefully that I can help other people on that journey as well. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And, you know, the one thing to, I would also like to emphasize is that part of the discomfort I think that people will feel when confronting those feelings or kind mm -hmm. of confronting their biases is it feels like a zero-sum game. Yeah. It feels like there has to be a loser for there to be progress or for, the, for, for others to feel included, others have to be excluded. Mm. And we know that that's not true. We know that the kingdom of God is open to whoever wants to be part of it, right? They, um, yeah. They're welcome to it. And so I would just encourage that when, we, when we're thinking about these topics about uh, you know inclusion, diversity, confronting um, kind of very long held beliefs in, yeah. in our country, um, it allowing a seat at the table for more people is not about, it's not musical chairs. We're not taking a <laughs> chair away. Right. Yeah. We're just making more space for, for more chairs. And, um, Rabbi Daniel Lappin has this really great, uh, book called thou shall prosper. It's really actually about how the Jew, how people in the Jewish faith, have tended to prosper no matter what culture they've um, uh, inhabited. Um, but this analogy he uses applies here too, which is it's the cake and candles. 
And a lot of times people think about money in his context, but again, in this scenario, people think about their worldview as cake. And if we cut up the cake and we share it, there is no more cake left for me. And instead, what he, it, he um, encourages to think about it like birthday candles, because when you light a birthday candle, that light actually light can light a next candle and mm. that light can light another candle and it and it goes on forever. And that's really what, when we're talking about things like diversity and inclusion, that's what it's about. And when yeah. we're talking about equity, that's what it's about. It's about how do we use the light that we have access to mm -hmm. and light the next candle. Yeah. And leading with love. I love how mm -hmm. you emphasize that. And it really made me think back to a scenario I experienced with one of my old high school friends whose brother decided he wanted to be become a woman and was married at the time, had children and went through this extremely challenging season of life in which their children were separated from them because the mother did not want them around that situation. And um, this individual actually became suicidal. It was very scary. And this is where I feel like Jesus started to shape my presuppositions about um, LGBTQ people and um, maybe what I believe as far as how do I show Christ to them? And it, there's a difference between condoning all behaviors and never calling anything out as sin ever. Like Jesus didn't do that. He didn't unilaterally say there's no sin. Of course he didn't. But in that situation, when I was hearing about that story and my friend's family member is suicidal because they're transgender and they're being separated from their family and they feel like everything's being taken away from them. I realized in that moment, Jesus would have been their best friend. Mm -hmm. He would have sat right there in the mess and that's empathy. And if that's where I need to grow to just sit right there with someone in the mess, then that's where I need to grow. And I think Jesus uses that concept of I'm going to love them first to create the space in which he calls out life change later, but it's usually not in the moment mm -hmm. um, when he's hanging out with someone with a questionable background and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? He's not in that same breath being like, you know what? They're right. You're such a sinner. You really need to change that. He does call them to repentance. He does call out what we're doing in our lives, but as Christians, we will not reach people with the gospel when the first thing we do is tell them to change their life. Because if they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, our culture is such that it's so prevalent that no one understands up from down, right from wrong. And you tell someone to change something they feel they've been born with, they don't understand it. Um, and really only with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will any change occur. And we don't even know what that looks like. Right. But it's just God teaching me at least like, okay, lead with love first, because if I want to make an impact in this person's life, I want them to meet me. That's what I want first. I want to sit there with them. So you sit there with them. Mm -hmm. You take on their pain because I, I realized in that moment, like I could never understand the amount of pain that would make me feel so not at home in my body that I would want to change it. I can't amount, imagine the amount of pain that would make me want to end my life because I don't have the connections that I once did. I, I don't understand that. I haven't been there. But what can I understand? What can I sit with? And just realizing, wow, 
that is so heavy. And I want to just be here for you. What can I do? How can I sit with you? Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus would start with. And um, I was having a great conversation with my interns today about this as well. And just the concept of like, okay, if I'm working with high schoolers, working with young people, here's another area in which we can influence and use the world of empathy, right? And how do I lead someone with empathy who, who I feel like is making stupid decisions, right? Totally. <laughs> and we were talking about how, I mean, high schoolers, the middle schoolers, the frontal lobe is not fully developed. Expect stupid decisions. Um, but let them invite you to have the influence to help them change things. And that's the same with any person we interact with and deal with in this concept of empathy that we first want to sit with them. We first want to love them with the love of Christ. And maybe it's one, two, three, five, ten conversations later where they say, you know, what would you tell me to do? Or can you think of something I could be doing better? Or how can I get out of this hole? How can I change this? And they invite you to have that voice in their life. Or if they don't, you can start asking the questions, Hey, I have an idea that might help you in your situation. Would you be open to hearing it? And when we have started with that empathy, with that love, people are going to feel that they're going to feel appreciated. They're going to be vulnerable with you. They're going to know that you're in their corner and they might be open to hearing than something that maybe God's telling you they could do better in their lives, right? So kind of just opening up those conversations differently, asking permission before we try to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually a really great segue to our other topic that we wanted to talk about, which is how to cultivate empathy in the context of parenting, which can be really hard. And yes, yeah, we're on opposite ends of the parenting spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? So I've got three young adults and you've got two itty bitty peanuts. Yeah, I got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Yes. And um, I miss those days, actually. You um, miss the age of three? I'll give you her. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, sometimes I wish I could have a do-over on a couple of like just really not so good parenting mm, moments. Yes. Um, and yeah, I don't even, there's so, actually there's more than a couple. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> but, um, you know, when my kids were growing up, I definitely had more of like an authoritarian view of parenting and I was um, a little bit more authoritarian than really what they needed. My kids are, they were great kids. And I I think we, Gary and I just maybe needed to trust a little bit more that um, what God was presenting to us is in these kids who we got the privilege of being their earthly parents was we didn't need to try to be (laughs) you know, so hardcore with them. And, and we didn't understand that until a little bit later. And, you know, we, we did end up adjusting our style and recognizing that each of them actually needed a little bit of different parenting Mm -hmm. and different parenting from each other and different parenting than what we were doing, which was really a big eye opener. One of our kids actually went through a time where Um, they were in crisis and it actually, it led to self-harm and suicidal ideation. And, uh, one Thanksgiving, it was the day after Thanksgiving, actually, or weekend after we, you know, we were in the ER Mm. and our child was being admitted into the ER for, um, it it was a behavioral health emergency, you know, and it was really, really terrifying. And we were so sad for our child. And we kept asking ourselves, why is this happening? What what did we do wrong as parents? Did mm-hmm. we drive through through our parenting style? Did we kind of drive this 
quote unquote rebellion to the point where, um, you know, they were, they felt like they needed to, this is how they had to respond. And how did we not see it? We just had a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you know, teens are notoriously challenging to parent and, and we don't often know how to respond when they're exhibiting behaviors that we don't like. And our default was often to discipline and lecturing and talking about, you know, when I was growing up, which they turn, like they shut off their brain. They don't care. Like that, they do not care. Um, so that was our default uh, versus empathy. But we actually ended up doing this therapy. It's this kind of caregiver and child-centric therapy called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT for short. And it's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that combines strategies like mindfulness, communication, acceptance of circumstances, and of course, empathy. And through that, we actually really started to learn how to look through the lens of empathy as parents. We worried less. I realized that what my husband and I had was an ego problem. Hmm. We were worried about the um, the optics of yeah. being the authority figures in the family versus really like understanding what it was that our child needed and didn't understand that it's not black or white, but there is actually, it's a yes and, right? So you Mm -hmm. can be an empathetic parent, you can be more tender, you can sit with them and try to understand what they're experiencing on the inside um, as the authority, as the adult who has more lived experience than they do, as a person who has seen more seasons of life than they have. Mm -hmm. So it's not either or, but it's, it's a yes and. And that actually has made a world of difference. And it takes a lot of practice really, you know, and I feel like, you know, we're still actively parenting our kids through, you know, through college. And, um, and it, it does feel like a privilege to be their parents here on earth. And I'm, I feel like a tremendous amount of personal growth has come out of that experience. And that's our, that's our living testimony as a family. Uh, you know, God really has opened up our eyes to understanding the way Jesus, uh, Well, he wasn't a father, you know, but he loved children Mm -hmm. and he loved those who were hurting and he really wanted them to be well. Right. And um, and if we had been able to follow his model sooner, I think uh, that would have been helpful in our situation, though. Sorry, I'm starting to get a tear. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. All you know, emotions are welcome. Totally. You know, I've told this story so many times and I do my eyes well up every time. But, you know, I really believe that. Um he was working wonders in that season in our life. The Holy spirit was moving throughout that whole season. And I always say a testimony is awesome to have because Mm -hmm. you might be able to help someone else who's going through something, but it's a pain in the butt to get. Yeah. Yeah. But it really, I mean, that is empathy based parenting that we really had to, to practice and cultivate. Um, Yeah. And this is the one for me that's been like, this is where God wants me to work right now. This is the area in which he's calling me to grow in empathy. Cause I don't know what it is about empathy, love empathy. I'm an Enneagram too. I always take into consideration everyone else's emotions at all times. I'm a high eye on the disc profile. Like literally everything about me is like, let me make everyone else. Okay. Yeah. Like that's my whole personality. So empathy comes maybe more easily for me than other people yet in the realm of parenting, I don't know why it hadn't really crossed my mind that my tiny humans were 
humans that needed empathy in the same way that I would advocate for empathy in the workplace, in my other circles, as an adult in the spheres of life in which I walk. And, you know, parenting was very disconnected from that. And this is, yeah, it's where I need it the most right Mm -hmm. now. I'm learning so much. And I feel like God has really been highlighting it because just full vulnerability. I felt like I was turning into the angry mom Mm -hmm. all the time and I was snapping. I felt like I was triggered constantly by little things, but it just over and over and over and over because I have a three-year-old and she's full three-nager. She's hilarious and so smart and very communicative, but because she's so communicative, she wants to rule the roost. Like by the time she was two and a half, she wanted to tell me what to do all day and would have meltdowns, not because I didn't understand her, but because I wasn't following her dictation for whatever the thing was that day. And I think I started to hold on more tightly to that like control or, you know, I know the schedule in my head of the things that we have to do and the places we have to go and how much of it was wrapped up in the optics of like, if we're late, everyone sees me walking in late. I'm frustrated that we're late. So now I'm triggered and I'm going to yell at you because we're late because yes. why is everything taking so long? And people are going to think this thing, right? Yeah, it's yeah. all optics. Yeah. Because yeah. it's been very ingrained in me like you don't show up late because, you know, people's time is valuable and I want make don't want to make people wait for me but then am I really just more concerned about like what people think about me when I walk through the door than actually being late you know what I mean like it's more the perception than the actual situation um but it's been really interesting for me in the last honestly few weeks to dive in more into empathy and parenting and I actually found an account on Instagram the mom psychologist she's amazing And she did a mindfulness challenge that I just like deep dove through all the content through one weekend and um, starting with like, what are your triggers? What's causing those triggers? Like asking the five whys, which you can Mm -hmm. really use in any other empathy training. Like if you want to learn how to be more empathetic, ask the question why and keep asking why five times and you'll maybe get close to the root of whatever is going on. But, you know, going through learning about why are things getting to me the the way the way that they are and um it's just so interesting because I've obviously I've never had a three-year-old before I'm still a relatively new mom we're relatively new parents we're not necessarily on the same page about everything I'm parenting yet because we're only three years into this and it's there's so much room for growth and improvement and change but I'm learning that wow, like this tiny human I have actually responds better when I start with empathy, start with seeing what my kid needs in that moment, not just thinking about what I need and really practice the same things I'm doing with other people all day long, but with this tiny three-year-old. And it's been crazy to me how disconnected that was and how I'm having to relearn really in this process. Yeah, that's so good. Um, Did you ever do the five love languages? I know mine, but I don't yet know my kids. So, so yeah, we did it um, as a family okay. exercise. And I thought that it was really helpful. And what I learned through that process is that almost all kids first love language is words of affirmation. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> Which is super interesting. And and even if they you do the test and it doesn't show up, there is a baseline. There's kind of like ticket to ride is 
give them words of affirmation. Mm. And then the other love languages might show up. And if, if that's their number one, then it's like double dose. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we learned that about one of our kids and it kind of connected some of the dots around why having that more bossy parenting style wasn't working for mm-hmm. them and how recognizing like, Oh, they actually just, they need a different touch. They just need a different yeah. entry point for the conversation. You can still get a, you know, get your point across and you can still lay your ground rules and you can still be mm-hmm. in charge of your household, but you just come at it in a different way for a kid who who yeah. needs that. Right. So yeah, you can still have boundaries. And I think that's, that's what right. people, you know, don't understand necessarily about like the gentle parenting tactics and maybe just the concept of that. Um, they assume, well, that kid's just going to have free reign and be ruling the roost. Like, I'm sure that's what my husband would say too. But <laughs> at the same time, you can hold boundaries. You can have um, different levels of discipline for different things. But I think what was really mind opening to me was I was snapping and making decisions in the moment that I was snapping instead of like, okay, don't make parenting decisions. Don't make um, the threats of punishment or I'm going to take that away or whatever when I'm feeling heated. If I feel calm, it's okay to make any of those decisions because I'm level. I can make the right decision, but wait till I've regulated to make those types of decisions. I'm like, oh boy, I haven't been doing that. Right. So, okay. And you can, you can hold those boundaries, but it's about me learning to regulate and be empathetic with my toddler, because that's actually teaching her in her life, how to be empathetic towards others and how to regulate her emotions. If she can watch me go through the process of doing this better. So instead of, even if I snap, we've had a lot of good conversations after the fact, I feel like I've been doing okay in some things because I would snap, but then I'm like, oh my gosh, we need to have a conversation about that. We need to talk about, I'm sorry, I yelled, like this is why I yelled, but it doesn't excuse the behavior, you know, and talking through it. But if I can start to identify the triggers earlier, we don't necessarily have to get to that heightened experience where everything's so tense, where nothing's getting communicated. Exactly. And when you, you know, take stuff away or punish or threat that like discipline, actually the word discipline means to teach and you're not teaching anything in that moment. You're just taking stuff away. Like it doesn't actually come across as a life experience they can learn and grow from. And if I can actually teach them empathy and like, this is what you do with your emotions. That's something they can learn and grow from and carry on and, and, you know, move forward with their lives. But yeah. Oh, you touched on something so good there, which is discipline. Yeah. It sounds a lot like discipleship. It does. Right? It comes from the same word. Right, I'm yeah. a Greek nerd. I took Greek a little bit in yes. college. It does. I mean, same root. For real. There's this writer um, and radio personality that I love. Her name is Rachel Cruz. Mm-hmm. And she says this phrase that more is caught than taught, which is exactly what you're talking about, right? It's kind of, what are you modeling? Um, What's the behavior that they're going to carry forward? Because that's the example that they saw from their mom. And I think that's really cool. And you made me think about when my daughter was Kiara's age and she had Barbie dolls that she chopped off all the hair. And here's me doing, haircuts. yeah, haircuts. This is me doing fundamental attribution error that I was talking about earlier. <laughs> I immediately went from, I observed this child cut my doll, her doll's hair, my doll, <laughs> her doll's hair. And I went from that to, oh my gosh, my child does not know how to value possessions and doesn't understand 
how hard it is to earn the money that it takes to buy the things. Which is why you called it my doll. Right. And she's three years old. Yeah. Right. Like how is she supposed to, like, of course she doesn't. Yeah. But maybe actually, if I was thinking about it from the lens of a three-year-old, maybe she was curious mm-hmm. <laughs> about what would happen if I did this and, yeah. or maybe she was ex- being creative. Right. And, yeah. um, which is a lot more logical answer to why she did that. Yeah. Versus she just what probably thought she was being a hairstylist. She was being a hairstylist and hairstylist yeah. used scissors. Uh, yeah. So it's really, um, I'm actually in this conversation thinking back on some of those moments where I'm like, <laughs> I went from zero to 60. Yeah. So quick. And like the 60 is like next level. That's like adult thinking. Why would I think yeah. that a three-year-old would even understand yeah. that? And I know it's like, it's crazy to me still that it's so much easier for me to put myself in the shoes of a grown adult who I can expect to act in nearly predictable ways. Like, yes, let's empathize. Let's sit there. We can figure this out. We can talk it through. I want to hear what your life experiences. I want to hear what you're going through. I'm here for you. And yet it takes so much effort to put myself in the shoes of my growing brain toddler who has like zero impulse control. And yet I assume they have the same amount of impulse control that I do. And I get frustrated with the lack of that, but like literally developmentally they can't. And just to understand that now in order to be empathetic, like this is where I can grow is remembering that I can understand where she's coming from when she's frustrated. Mm -hmm. I can sit with her and say, that was frustrating, wasn't it? You know, like I understand you wanted X, Y, Z, and that's sad that you don't have that right Mm -hmm. now. Like I can empathize with that, even if to me it's a minor thing, right? Or it's not the end of the world. If it's the end of her world, that's all she knows to experience right now. She's three. She has no concept of like future, right? And um, And putting a name to those feelings. Yeah. That's so important. And like I mentioned that uh, mom psychologist account, she had a quote that I loved in one of these videos. And I feel like it actually applies to adults too, as we seek to practice cultivating empathy. But she said, I see you. I'm Mm. not trying to fix you. I feel your pain. I acknowledge your pain. I'm sitting with you in this pain. I'm not trying to fix you here. I'm not trying to make this stop or go away. I'm not trying to control you. And when we stop trying to control our child's emotions or when we stop trying to control the stuff going on around us with the other experiences that we're in, then we're helping healing happen. And it actually makes it more likely for that person to calm down. We think like, stop crying and calm down. It's going to help. But if you've ever been like irrationally emotional and been told to calm down, you know that that doesn't work. It makes you like set off to the next level. Right. So Mm -hmm. same thing with your kids. Um, and empathy is not about agreeing with their feelings. It's the same thing we've talked about that empathy, allyship, inclusion, all of these things doesn't necessarily mean I agree with exactly the way you're taking this. It does mean we, we can sit with and see where they're coming from, even if you don't and if you know, even if you don't agree with their conclusion, you can understand where they're coming from. You can be empathetic. You don't have to agree or condone with behavior just to sit with them in empathy mm-hmm. and say, hey, I see you. I feel your pain. I know what you're experiencing is really hard. And I think that's where that difference comes in as Christians. Like we can sit with anyone in their pain. Mm-hmm. We can sit with 
anyone in their experience and get better at that and show Christ's love first there and not be afraid of what's the presupposition going to be. What's, you know, somebody walking by, what are they going to think about what, what I'm doing or who I'm with or whatever? Like, that's not what Jesus would have been thinking about in that moment. He had those conversations going on around him. The Pharisees were calling out who he was sitting with and the associations that he had. Right. But he still chose in that moment, I'm going to sit with this person and we all can do that. We can, we can do it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's the thing. If I were to like want someone to walk away from this talk with the knowledge that you, you can sit with someone, you mm-hmm. can, you can try to understand what their lived experience is. And just like Jesus did, associated with all of these undesirable people and known sinners, um, it didn't mean that he necessarily affirmed all of that behavior and mm-hmm. affirmed, you know, like the, the choices that they had made or are going to make in their life. And the same holds true for us, right? Yeah. Just, you know, by demonstrating empathy and compassion does not mean that we are condoning everything, right? Yeah. It just means that we're showing up in a way that can help people to feel like they're valued and that the Holy Spirit can work in their life too. Yeah. That love first mentality. And I always think that like, if we can show them that, thank God it is not my job to change people because it's actually the Holy Spirit's work. Exactly. And so if I can just show somebody love, if I can just show them Jesus in my life, if I can just show them what's possible, what God can do, um, and they can come meet Jesus the Holy Spirit does the rest, right? We don't have to worry about fixing the person or fixing the situation necessarily. It's let God work, you know, but if you can start with love, if you can show up and show that person, Jesus, you have no idea what's going to change in their life and what God's going to do, which I just think is so cool. We're going to, we're going to find ourselves in opportunities we never would have if we lean into that. Yeah. And I just want to encourage out of this conversation that none of us are ever done. This is like my mantra for everything I do in leadership development, especially that like I'm just a champion of learning all the things, but we are actually wired into our 90s, like physically in our bodies to change and to adapt. That's how God created us. And so we're not done yet. Doesn't matter how old you are. There's always learning to be done growth to go through. And so this is an area in which we can grow. And I encourage you, if you are listening to be open to growing in empathy and listening to where God wants you to press in. So in what sphere of your life do you need to grow in empathy the most? And we've talked about a lot of these different categories. We've kind of run the gamut of a few things God's done in our lives through empathy and areas in which we've seen this show up. But which one is it for you? Which area do you think God is calling you to press into, whether that's through highlighting an uncomfortability with something? Uh, yeah, the discomfort, the tension is rising somewhere in your life, or it's just like, you know what? Yeah, I could be better there. I could show up better in this type of a situation, whether that's with your family, your friends in the workplace, you know where it is. So let, let God work in it. Don't be afraid to open yourself up in this area and allow God to do some work. So we've mentioned a few resources in here. We're going to leave just a couple more 
just in case you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go on this journey and I want to dive into one of those topics. So if racial reconciliation is something that God is putting on your heart, I highly encourage the book White Fragility. And um, everything we mention here is not the word of the Lord. Therefore, you can take everything with a grain of salt. So you don't have to agree 100% with any book to, to receive value from it. Allow God to um, work on your mindset through that book. I think there's a ton of value and some people are just afraid to dive in. But that book was really helpful for me shaping my understanding of privilege, of whiteness and of the concept of individuality versus like community awareness. So how so many other cultures have a communal experience and as white people, we tend to view the world as an individual experience and have a harder time connecting to someone who has a more communal experience because of that. So that particularly was very eye-opening for me, helped me to grasp the concepts of, okay, I'd never thought of it that way. Or yeah, that is something I've experienced. And it really just highlights a lot of examples, a lot of um, studies, really good information in that book. It's a very like kind of a clinical read on what racism is. And then for kind of that more spiritual direction out of that, I would recommend starting with that, especially if you are white and you uh, maybe haven't gone into this topic at all. But for those of any racial background, I would definitely suggest Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. And she is wonderful at drawing the spiritual conclusions um, through racial issues, especially when it comes to lament. So again, I think the concept of individuality is really important to process through first, or else you will struggle with lamenting for someone's experience that isn't yours. So I do encourage white fragility first, if you need just kind of a cursory understanding, but then going through be the bridge is so spiritually helpful to dive into how can I, in that empathetic way, lament something that happened, something that's happening, sit in that pain, empathize. Lament is really another form of empathy that shows up in scripture and it's crying out to God. You know, how can I cry out to God for the, in, you know, for the sake of someone else's experience and feel the pain of that person and cry out to God for that person or for those people and their lived experience. So those books are both super good. I grew a lot reading through those and even more, um, Jamar, oh, what is his name? But the book, uh, color of compromise is a good history background on this. And then he has one out of that, that Jamar Tisby, he writes, um, how to fight racism is one of his newest books. And that's like very action step oriented for those that get frustrated with not knowing what to do with the information they've been given. So those would all be great. And then we mentioned the sympathy versus empathy video by Brene Brown. That's a super easy watch that can just help bring these topics back to light. And yeah, the mom psychologist on Instagram, if you are looking at how can I parent my child, no matter their age with more empathy, that one has been a great resource. And then a world of difference podcast would be a resource for those of you that maybe just want to think about how can I grow in inclusion and allyship in all the areas of my life with a Christian perspective. So all those would be really great. 
And Leah, thank you so much for being here with me. It was so fun having this conversation with you today. And I'm so glad I just got to pick your brain and talk about these topics. It's been a blast. Thanks so much for having me. And I just, the last parting note I will leave too, because hearing your journey, Shauna, has Mm -hmm. been really inspirational. And I just want to encourage folks to just take the position of meeting judgment with curiosity. Mm. So in those moments where you feel like your natural default is not love, but rather it's judgment or it's, you know, based in a a worldview that doesn't always include everyone. um, Be curious, be curious, just like you're being. And I think that that's a really wonderful place to start. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone who is listening, we're so glad to have you as our listeners. We've loved having you on Getting Real About, and our next topic will air on Wednesday, May 25th, and it's going to be Getting Real About Having It All, the best of both worlds. So that should be a great one. You won't want to miss it. If you've enjoyed this episode of Getting Real About, make sure that you follow us on your preferred podcast platform and share this episode with the other ladies in your life or men. You know, we'll, we'll be inclusive of the men and so you can share it with them too. We believe every podcast episode has something for everyone. So make sure you share. See you later. Bye.